Welcome to DT Madness, Chronicles from the Third Life, episode 36, December 3rd, 2022. So glad you could make it. Well, as you know, um, if you've listened to the past couple of weeks, One of the ways that I start off my morning routine uh, is to read um, the the entry for the day of what is called Your True Home. It's uh, just little writings from Thich Nhat Hanh. And one of these the other day was talking about being angry at someone. If you're angry with someone, then just imagine what your life will be like 300 years from now. And... That, and, and, and his point was that helps you to be a little bit less angry. But it got, to, got me to thinking about 300 years from now, that'll be, you know, in just a month, it'll be 2323. Um, 2323 would be 300 years from now. And I can't even, I mean, there's, it's impossible to imagine with the advance in technology, although perhaps we will have worked our way back towards a more primitive age um, with all of our technology, but we'll we'll see. I won't, um, and that's part of the point. Come back to that a little bit. Um, I, I've I've been thinking about next semester. We we have just a few weeks left, about eight days of day, of instructional days, and then final exams start, and then um, we will take the break for for Christmas and come back in January with with new classes for the most part. Um, And so, you know, I've I've talked about school reform and my ideas on education. And so I'm going to try to lay some of those out here. um, I'm I'm already in the mode of trying to revamp my practice, Um, you know, coming out of COVID this is maybe the first year that it's really been fully, mostly back to normal. Although it's just been crazy at our school with so much construction going on. And anyway, so I do have school reform dreams. I mean, I think about the the time structure that we use and, you know, whether eight to three is even something that's valuable and certainly are 90 minute classes worthwhile. Um, you know, it's tough to keep anyone's attention span for 90 minutes. And of course, as teachers, we should chop up the block as they say, and, and, and try to keep the kids moving around and, and whatever. But I, you know, I, I don't think Monday through Friday, eight to three with, with a four bell system. I mean, I just, it's not ideal. It's not what um, really works. And, you know, so it's, there are things that I wish that we could change, but that just butts up against reality. And the reality is, is that in a lot of ways, we are a daycare system. Um, And I don't necessarily mean that in a, I mean, I just, it just is, you know, what would these kids do? If they weren't in the school building from eight to three, we know how much damage was done when we had remote learning. I mean, 
many of these kids don't need to be at home. They don't need to be at home, even with so-called family. Um, so much negative things going on. And so it'd be fun to play around with the actual structure, the institutional structure, but the, but the realities are that we're going to have the kids from eight to three. And in many cases, the extracurricular activities, the, the more that they can be in the public school system, the better, you know? And so we got to adjust to that and, and their political wins too. You know, I live in a state which, which is controlled by a Republican legislature, which is just one vote shy of uh, a supermajority where uh, they could override a veto by the governor, which happens to be a Democrat, Cooper, at the time. Um, we probably aren't quite to the level of the, the Virginia governor and, and perhaps some of these other states where teacher tip lines and those types of things. But certainly our new school board members, they use the buzz phrases of critical race theory and gender studies and all that kind of stuff. Just just sending signals to teachers that you better be careful um, you gotta, you gotta be watching your back a little bit. And so education's going to be on the forefront. The school board battles are at the forefront of our political turmoil, uh, during, during this time. And we'll see for how long. So anyway, there's, there's all of that kind of stuff going on. So it'd be fun to sit down. It'd be fun to sit down and talk about some ideals of what, if we could, if we, if we, if we could start from scratch and rearrange society and all that kind of stuff, like what would, what would be the best system for schooling and education and all that? And that'd be, it'd be interesting, but, but the realities don't really allow that. I, I'm going to read an essay written by a, a student in Mr. Good's class. It says in recent years, a debate has emerged about the significance of grades. Renowned educational researcher, Alfie Cohn wrote, the more students are led to focus on how well they're doing the less engaged they tend to be with what they're doing. While grades can have benefits overall, they do more harm than good. Grades tend to introduce the idea of perfection, which we are incapable of achieving. Rhonda Dixon, an English teacher at Crest High School, said, Grades are a good motivator. The perfect answer would be that learning can't be quantified, but what would be the purpose? Nobody learns for the sake of learning. Ms. Dixon makes an excellent point when she references the lack of motivation among students, but people often forget that the deficit of motivation was initiated by grades. When kids are first placed into the school system, an immense amount of pressure is placed on reading for rewards, testing well for rewards, learning for rewards. If you haven't noticed, the key words here are for rewards. Psychology teacher Daniel Thomas stated that grades have too much value and they remove intrinsic motivation from learning. According to FrontiersIN.org, intrinsic motivation is defined as the doing of an activity for its inherent satisfaction rather than, from, rather than for some separable consequence. As children, we are born with this motivation, but with the school system comes the replacement of intrinsic by extrinsic motivation. This refers to accomplishing a task for an outside reward, and it depletes intrinsic motivation. Why should we be rewarded for making a perfect score on a test and not for making mistakes that we can learn from? As someone who suffers from test anxiety, I can testify to the fact that grades are not representative of knowledge. My grandfather has been diagnosed with cancer for about two years now, and last week he had to have emergency surgery. I went to the hospital with the rest of my family because we did not know the severity of the surgery <clears throat> or the potential complexity of the recovery. 
We were at the hospital until one in the morning and I had a chemistry test the next day. Even though I was under a lot of stress and shock, along with being extremely tired, I came to school the next day. My plan was to ask my teacher if I could study for the test during class and take it on a later day, as I had no time to study or prepare for the test the night before and was not in the mental space to do well. My teacher did not agree with my plan because she said it was my fault that I wasn't prepared. While some teachers prioritize grades, others understand the controversy of them. English teacher Donnie Good says grades are counterproductive to the nature of what school should be. Perhaps if school wasn't so focused on grades and proving ourselves based on a numerical value that we gain absolutely nothing from and instead was focused on learning how to be a decent human being, we would not have to be afraid, so afraid of failing. In conclusion, grades are inadequate in describing someone's understanding of taught material and level of intelligence. Teachers should be more sympathetic towards students and less focused on the expectations of certain students. In the show Boy Meets World, Mr. Feeney says, You see, Mr. Matthews, education is not about obscure facts and little test scores. Education is about the overall effect of years of slow absorption of concepts, philosophies, approaches to problem solving. The whole process is so grand and all-encompassing that it really can't be threatened by the, the occasional late-night no-hitter. It is important that a boy spend time with his father. And that's a 10th grader, uh, sophomore, a 15-year-old, writing that. Um, and a good introduction. So, you know, ideally, I would make huge changes. But in reality, some of the things that I'm thinking about going forward, just kind of briefly, um, one of the things that, that I've got to learn better to teach my kids is how to Google information, which, you know, it's interesting that Google is a verb. Um, I saw a map from, I don't remember how long ago it was, 10 years ago, uh, 10 or 15 maybe. And it showed the world and like what the, uh, what the most used internet search engine was. And it was spread out all around. Google was in parts. Explorer was in parts. Safari was in parts. Uh, other ones that I hadn't heard of were in parts of the world. But if you look at that same map today, it's Google everywhere. That that particular um, platform dominates the globe, controls the flow of information in a lot of ways. And what I have found is that what my students do is simply type in the question that they have, find out whatever pops up on Google without clicking on any links, whatever just pops up at the top. And then they write that down. And it's right often enough um, to where, you know, they've been conditioned into doing that. And part of that is my failure. This is still a hangover from COVID from, for them being able to get away with that. And so for me, I've got to do a better job of focusing on each individual student in terms of how they're processing that information. Um, but my idea really, honestly, is just to figure out maybe seven minute windows, something like that, where I, I have to take them through steps of, of using Google or whatever to find out information. But in the, in that process to figure out how to discern what the websites are, um, how to move forward when what you're writing down is perhaps accurate, but you're just copying and parroting and you really don't have any understanding. And so part of that is, is I've got to do better designing um, 
designing these assignments, these classroom activities, so that it's not just, you, you know, using, just copying and pasting, honestly. Um, so that's something that I've got to figure out, you know, but that discernment, that consideration of all the different types of angles, it's tough. It's tough because of confirmation bias. We we find what we're looking for and then we stop looking and, and we settle into these ideas that we've got it maybe figured out. But I try to teach my civic students that these issues that we deal with are complex. If they weren't, then we would just deal with them. We would just solve them. If If the immigration issue was an easy fix, then we would all agree on it. If, you know, energy usage and climate change and social issues and economic issues, whatever it is, like if, if they were, if they had simple fixes, then we would all pretty much be in agreement. And so trying to dig into what the different perspectives are, not that, that students can't form their own opinions once they do that, but actually going through that process. Memorization is fine. In fact, I probably lean too little on memorization. I think I moved away from it a couple of years ago because I, I kind of figured that all of the information in the entire, you know, pretty much in the entire planet is at the touch of their fingertips and increasingly will be, I mean, these AI chatbots that are being displayed now, it, it's, it's only a matter of time before information it won't even be something that we have to look for. It will be readily available for us, maybe even at the thought. It's going to be a wild, a wild transition into all that kind of stuff. But I forget sometimes that my students don't know the things that I, I know. They don't have a base of information. They don't know that there are three branches of government. My AP kids do for the most part, but many of the students just, they don't have this type of knowledge. They don't. They don't have the basic facts of history or government or psychology or whatever I'm teaching. And so I do want to lean back a little bit more on memorization um, on which to build these ideas of processing and discerning and all of that kind of stuff. And in the meantime, I, I'm still trying to figure out how to utilize technology. All of our students have Google Chromebooks. It was a great initiative, a one-to-one -one initiative, but... They're just so slick. They know so many ways to get around filters and so many ways to get around teachers wandering around the classroom and, and who can only focus on one or two students at a time. And, and, and they know all the little games to play. And I'm not mad at them about it, but I've got to figure out better ways to use technology. And honestly, I'm probably going to really fall back uh, and have their laptops closed most of the times and, and generate text on paper for them. Um, and then use those seven minute, you know, five minute windows anyway. And I say seven minutes and five minutes. One of the things I, I want to try to deal with is their attention spans. You know, with all of our instant communication and everything, I mean, like, how long can you go without picking your phone up? I mean, we pick it up hundreds of times a day. I ask the students to check their numbers of pickups. And me too. I'm almost 45 years old. Anytime there's a silence, anytime there's a commercial, if we're watching TV, if you still have like live TV and you're not able to skip commercials, then, you know, I pick the phone up just to check or whatever. And, and all of that kind of stuff has led to a decrease of our attention spans, which is, I mean, I don't know. And in, in many ways, I want to just get back to 
putting notes on the board like old school. Maybe I am getting old, you know, but like putting notes on the board that they have to write down where they do have to pay attention to what I'm saying. Now, it'll be up to me to make it interesting. It'll be up to me to tell good stories, but I, I'm, I can do that. Um, but somehow ways to manage attention spans of these students um, and not make the excuse and say that we've got to break it up into five or seven minute chunks, but to develop the ability, to begin to develop the ability to pay attention for 10, 15 minutes at a time. That leads to differentiation, which is a thing that we talk about as teachers and stuff that's in teacher textbooks, but I don't know. I don't know. When I have students who can finish the assignments that I have in 20 minutes or 15 minutes and the other students really do take double that amount of time. And it's not, look, some of them, some of them have, have figured out how to game the system. No doubt. No doubt. But some of them really do process slower. And they are working and they are trying and they are putting forth effort, but it just takes them double the amount of time. And when I've got 26 students in a classroom and a third of them are you know, done in 10 minutes, a third of them are done in 20, and a third of them are done in 40, I don't know how, I don't know how best to deal with that. I want to design my classroom such that I don't want it to be unfair for the students who are able to process faster. And so they have to do more quote unquote work. So I've got to redefine what I think about what classroom work is and how best to maybe team the, the different levels of students up and work. Ah, that's a good, that's good. I'm thinking in the midst of a podcast right now. So I'm going to write that part down. But I, I want them all, regardless of where their uh, uh, their processing speeds are, you know, what their levels of intelligence are. All of the kids can learn respect and soft skills. You know, how to shake somebody's hand or fist bump them or look them in the eye, listen to them. You know, at least to pretend to be listening. You know, while I'm talking to you, to learn how to write resumes, to learn how to you know do an interview, um, to learn how to manage emotions when you are fired up or are having a pretty bad day. Um, that's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Emotional intelligence um, is the educational imperative of our time. I said many years ago, and my friend Ryan Etheridge wrote that down. I think he tweeted it. But it's still the case. Emotional intelligence. We gotta, we gotta figure out ways to, you know, help these kids deal. Uh, and in a lot of ways, in some cases, our teachers need help dealing. I'm moving on. Writing and expression, it's difficult because it does require a lot of attention and effort and extra work for teachers who are doing and pouring everything that they have out for the most part from eight to three. And then if you're really going to focus on writing and expression and those types of things, you're going to have to work during the hours where you're not getting paid. I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with that. Um, it's just part of the job, though, and I, I see a lot of things about how teachers shouldn't be required to do that kind of stuff, and, you know, uh, I don't know what to say, except for that if that's how you feel, I don't think you should go into the profession. Okay. Um, writing, expression, reading, you know, reading and not just for letting your eyes go across the words, but for comprehension, which will require differentiation, it will require, uh, you know, uh, chunks, smaller chunks, at least to start. 
but it, but but convincing kids that there is work worth doing you know that there's work worth doing that work itself is worth doing and i think that in our culture and i'm definitely influenced by wendell berry here that for a lot in a lot of ways we have made manual labor we have made uh the the, the work that needs to be done that that can be done we've made it beneath us and um, we, we still talk about that in terms of how robots are going to take over these particular jobs. And so, you know, kids are just focused on making money. And when that's the only motivation for working, I don't know that there's much intrinsic value there. Um, and so I think we've got to reemphasize and reevaluate, um, what work is and, and what pride you can, you can find in it. But that's a huge institutional challenge. So I, I talk a lot about grades and, you know, I agree with the 10th grade person who I might know who wrote that. Um, I, I was quoted in her essay. I, I'm not a big grades person. I do believe in the over justification effect that that it takes um, intrinsic value away when it's replaced with extrinsic value. You can look that study up. Um, but I do believe in excellence. And I think that by removing our current practices in in some ways, or at least by amending them, by uh, you know augmenting them in some ways, that we can return a pursuit of excellence to education that has been um, taken away in in many ways, you know. But but by the grading system and by this. I don't know. I don't want to say performance based. That's not what I'm talking about. Some people are, you know, some people are more capable in certain areas than others, and they should be recognized in that way. And it helps people figure out which ways they want to pursue. And so anyway, I am in favor of excellence and how to achieve that excellence, I guess, is what I am pondering here. Well, it's been uh, it's been quite a week, and I'll speak about that just a little bit in the second half. But uh, it was one year ago, this past December first, uh, just a couple of days ago, that I got my tattoo. Um, one year later, and it's interesting because while we were sitting in the hospital um, during my dad's surgery and uh, waiting for all of that down in the waiting room, there's a there's a sailboat, a, a boat on the sea, and all this kind of stuff, and 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 the big sign there says "Steer the course." And I was thinking about that during during the time uh, uh, my whole family was there, you know, and 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 I was just considering steer the course. And I appreciate that sentiment, you know, like, OK, some stuff's going to come up. And, you know, one of the ways that I've been thinking about is is with Matt Damon's character in uh, what is that movie about Mars? Uh, the Martian. There we go. Um, you know, they, it, I think it's actually one of the people on the ship and something goes wrong and they just say, you got to work the problem. You got to work the problem, and I think that's what steer the course is talking about. Um, and I was thinking about that in terms of my tattoo because I I do think that we need to work the problem that instead of focusing too far in the future or perhaps even in the past that we should just steer the course. We should be where we are. But of course, my tattoo is more about surrender. My tattoo is based on burning down the mast, but setting sail. Setting sail, setting our direction for the new world, 
um, and then burning down the mask because there is a there is a sense of surrender that I can't I can't really control the course as much as I want to, and so I have to be willing to surrender to the flow as well as being willing to along the way continue to create ripples to plant sequoias, you know, trees that I will not see. I will not get to see the fruit of my labor, but it's still worth doing. So maybe those things aren't all that different after all, as I talk through it, steer the course and burn down the mast uh, as you set sail for the new world. But anyway, still just one tattoo. A, A couple of other things before, or just one other thing. Sarah is in San Antonio this weekend uh for a trio trip she's down at some conferences down there and hanging out with our friend anna grace on the river walk there and uh listening to mariachi bands and such and so man i had to i was um i made my own lunch you know i made my lunch for school and so i just made some peanut butter and jelly and i'm i'm a man child and i like my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches folded in half like on one piece of bread folded in half but I like four halves, and so I'm really eating two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but they're in four halves, and it's just easy to pick up, and I like the bite-sized portions of it, and it's just it's just perfect for me. I love it so much. And so I made my own peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Sarah usually takes care of me in those ways, and I put way too much jelly, man. That junk was coming all out all over the place. I had to put like three napkins in the Tupperware just to keep it... Um, Anyway, and then I, I was making my cachava smoothie, which, you know, already Sarah already creates the bags for me with blueberries, avocado, you know, frozen avocado, spinach, and it's all frozen in uh, a little baggies. And so I can just dump it right in the blender with my two scoops of cachava, 14 ounces of water, boom, pour it all in there, blend it up. But sometimes like it, it, it takes a minute and the, and the frozen part doesn't get stirred up. I'm, I'm whirling my finger around right now. I know you can't see me. Um, but I'm I'm definitely having my own hand visuals here. But I, I took a spoon so that I could kind of jab the um the the frozen part down into the blender so it would blend up uh, before school. And I put the spoon a little bit too far down, and it hit the it hit the blade, and <laughs> it just exploded the purple blueberry cachava mixture all over the place. And so now I'm wiping down cabinets. This is right before school, you know. Um, so anyway, listen, I'm, I'm a grown man. I am a grown man, almost 45 years old. And to be fair, like I'm, I'm a feminist. I was a feminist before my wife was, I think I can probably say that with some truth with, with some accuracy. Um, but I do like it when my wife is here to make my lunch for school. All right, let's wrap up 23-23. Um, just a couple of, of, of items from from uh, Thanksgiving week, I guess. And, and so we, we went up to uh, my mother-in-law's house for Thanksgiving. And uh, Sydney and I rode up a little bit later. Uh, big crowds are not our favorite. We got there a little too early anyway. And it was still kind of craziness and just... They're loud people. They just are. They're loud people. And it's not bad. I don't mean that bad. It just is. Always has been that way. They enjoy talking loudly. And there was a bunch of new people there that I didn't know. And uh, so so Sydney and I retreated into the basement 
up there in Statesville and Sydney was playing piano and I was just looking around it. We still got some junk stored down in, in my mother-in-law's basement, but I found a lava lamp and I asked if I could have it. And, uh, when I was a high schooler, I had a lava lamp and it was orange and this one's light blue and it works and it makes me so glad I've got it in my room. So that was cool. And then, uh, a couple the Monday after Thanksgiving, I got to go to a school called township number township three. Um, it's not in Boiling Springs, and so, but it was the Powell's Literacy Day there. So they had people coming in to read for all different classes, and I got to go to my friend Danielle Ledbetter Kings, who was uh, who we went to high school together, and she has a class of of all special needs kids, mostly um, mostly uh, labeled or whatever, mostly categorized as uh, with autism. But um, I think there were nine of them, and oh my gosh, it was so awesome! I read the Itty Bitty Frog. They loved my baby bird voice. They each of them wanted to get individual pictures with me. Oh man, it was so awesome. That made me so happy. Um, what a what a great group of kids and what an amazing uh, teacher Miss King is. Um, another day, I was walking around. Uh, I've been writing cards. I got some some cards with the town of Boiling Springs logo. I'm the mayor, and that while. Um, and I've been writing little notes of happy holidays and Merry Christmas to the local businesses in town and just kind of touching base because there's some, some ideas that I have to uh, begin to draw the network of local businesses a little tighter so that we can both recruit new businesses, but also to support the ones that are here. So I've been walking around and hand delivering those so I can introduce myself. And I, as I was going into the, the insurance place, the local insurance uh, place, Max Hamrick, um, one of my old students was, was running by, uh, his name's Travis Lanier and he was like, Mr. Thomas. And I'm like, I knew it was him. You know, I didn't remember his name and I appreciated the fact that he was like Travis Lanier and I did knew it started with a T. I really did. Um, uh, and we, we, we daffed up, you know, and, uh, but he gave me a hug too. And, oh man, it's just so awesome. I mean, Travis wasn't in my class. He was in my class, like, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. I don't know how long time is weird now. It just made me glad, man. Just made me so glad that getting to do all those kinds of things at once, like delivering these cards, but also, um, you know, having old students come by. Um, and, and then, the, you know, the a couple of days after we, we had, I guess I'm out of order here a little bit, but that's okay. Um, the Monday after the Sunday of Thanksgiving. So I guess it was the same day I went to read to number three. Um, my dad had to go to the hospital. He, he had a, a hernia that blocked his, it clamped up on his intestines, I guess, and on his bowels and it was backing up. And my dad's been struggling with, with cancer for the last couple of years. And it was just, a, you know, it was a, it was a real thing because doing a hernia surgery on someone in uh pop's condition was, was risky. And so our our family got together. We all came down to the hospital. Um, you know, me and Sarah and Sydney and Isaac were there and my brother and, and his wife and daughter, um, the other two boys are in college. They came down. Sam drove down from Boone. He got there right at the time where the good news was delivered. And so that was good. You know, um, my sister and, and her husband were there and we were all sitting there supporting my mom, they, they, they let us sit in the main waiting room area, which was really closed off for everyone else. And so, you know, I was just, I was sitting there. I had 
fish radio in one ear, listening to a show, and that helps to calm me down. But I really was doing pretty well in the moment. It was it was just a, a good few days, though, of the family rallying together. My dad was able to come through the surgery. Um, they were able to heal, that like actually do more than they thought they were going to be able to do and actually repairing the hernia. Um, and after a couple of days in the hospital, he was able, he was able to come home, but we, we would go visit him. Um, you know, my daughter is not a big fan of elevators, but she overcame that. She overcame that so that we could get to the fifth floor to see pop. So many people in town were offering their, their prayers and their support and their kindness. You know, and I've come to grips with, with where we are in time. Um, it's, a it's a thing, you know, like I hate to see my dad in pain. Uh, I know that these days that we have now are each one is, is special. It should always be that way, but you know, mortality has a way of bringing focus. Um, my dad takes pain in, in, in stride the ways I hope I can do half as well. He's still, you know, talking junk and ornery kind of old man in the, in the, in the room, even while the nurses are in there. And, uh, so still cracking jokes. And, you know, while we were there, I made him laugh. I, I, we handed him our, our Christmas card. If you want one, send me your address. We got 80 of them. So please send me your address and I'll, I'll be glad to send you our Christmas card. Um, but, but I, you know, it's, it's overlooking a field. You know, my mom was like, where's that field? And I was like, it's across the street, you know, and I like to think those cows over there are mine. I like to sit there and pretend that they're mine. And that made my dad laugh, but he had just had hernia surgery. You no. Know? And so, the laughter was beautiful for a second until that laughter caused him a great deal of pain. You know, and in some mysterious way, that part was beautiful too. You know, the pain. He held up our Christmas card picture and teared up. And and really all he could get out was, that's a fine family. The day after that, I started crying on the way to school. We were listening to Kenny and Dolly, the, the song, The Greatest Gift of All. And I mean, I just remember growing up. I, I told you about that last week. And uh, I guess maybe I'd had some of that. I, I, I probably hold my emotions in a little bit too much. And uh, it just kind of came out driving to school. And my daughter put her hand on mine and just beautiful, man. My mom's birthday was December 1st. And my dad got to come home, you know, on that day. And so we're just, we're in the moment as best we can. Last night, I, I got to be the mayor and go to our Christmas tree lighting, the town's Christmas tree lighting. And I got to give a little speech, a little Christmas message to, and, and let everybody know, like in our town, it really is true that that help and prayers and encouragement and support, they're not far away. People are ready in an instant to provide and not just with, you know, thoughts and prayers, even though those are valuable, that energy is valuable. I don't care what anybody says. But also with food and with with help, with assistance. I dropped a Dave Matthews reference in my Christmas message. Talked about the giggling, dribbling baby boy. And uh, at least our town manager got it. And then after that, I got to read The Grinch to a bunch of kids. And it was just awesome. You know, little kids just rambunctious and talking about all this stuff. And I was making them make the Grinch face and I gave them fist bumps at the end. And many of them wanted to get pictures made with me. And I had on my Christmas llama sweater. And just now, you know, while I was planning this thing out, I went to Hannah's coffee shop over in Shelby 
and I, I was drinking my coffee and eating my blueberry scone, which is the thing I do now, and, and typing this thing up a little bit, outlining it out. And then I went up to get uh, to go, and, and Hannah was actually there, the owner of, of Hannah's coffee shop. And she said, can I get something started for you? And I was like, yeah, can I get a chai with oat milk? Because that's what my daughter was requested. And also, can I get a coffee shop in Boiling Springs? And so then I was able to strike up a conversation. Um, I love doing this. I love being mayor. It's been a really good week of being mayor and trying to highlight some of the many good things in our town. I, I, I'm good at it. I, I try not to get carried away. I want to make sure that I highlight all of the people who are doing things so that there aren't people who think I'm trying to be the, my own thing. Um, because that's not that's not the case, at least I hope, at least most of the time. Um, but anyway, it, it was just a good a good week. So, you know, 23, 23, 300 years from now, the idea is impermanence. Things are not permanent. And so instead of that bringing, you know, instead of that bringing anxiety, instead of that bringing fear and worry, it should set us free. It should help us to surrender because this, this moment right now, like recording this podcast while I'm making these hand signals with my hand that you can't see watching this candle burn and, and sipping this coffee. It's, this is what's good. The one single moment, you know, after I read to those kids, like after I read to those kids at number three, that the, the group with special needs, I just had this thought that one moment like that in a day is, is it makes the whole day worthy, right? Or, or and, and maybe one single moment makes existence worthy. And I don't know that worthy is the word I'm looking for there, but it makes it meaningful. One conscious breath. You know, if you just take one conscious breath a day, then that's meaningful. And I suspect that even the breaths that aren't conscious, even when we get lost and we are not aware, even then, aware of the door in the hospital room, not just the major moments, not just the the, the, the phenomenal and fantastic things, but being conscious of how you open and close a door, being conscious of someone else who would rather have it open or rather have it closed or it's the moment, you know, when you get on the elevator and you overcome fear. But but it's also the moment where you don't to get on the elevator because you don't overcome fear. It's the moment where you go about doing things unselfishly and highlighting everyone else and you really are in that zone. But it's also when you get wrapped up in self-glory. It's the moment when you master your emotions, if only for a time, but also when they blow through your very existence like a Cat 5 hurricane. It's the kind words you grant and the moments when you're a complete ass. Because we learn, or at least learning should be our aim, just like the Grinch in Scrooge. Don't call somebody a Grinch or a Scrooge in a negative way. Forget and, and forget about how the story ends. They are redeemed. They learn. Learning should be our aim. But we learn not for something 
such as grades or accolades or resumes or even jobs, even though all of those things are essential in their own ways. But because learning leads us to become human, to become more fully human, it opens our eyes. It slows things down. It grants perspective and passion. It lends to compassion and conviviality. Just one of my favorite words that Wendell Berry uses. You'll have to Google that up. Maybe I'll figure out a seven-minute window for you. But when our institutions are gone, you know, in 300 years, our institutions and our economic systems will likely be faded away. I will be faded away. When the, 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 the toys that we play with and the, the games that we play and all these kinds of things, these things that are passing, these things that too shall pass. When all of that stuff is faded away in 2323, when we are faded away in 2323, learning to be compassionate, learning to gain perspective and how to treat people well and how to love ourselves, how to add to the human story with our intellect, with our emotional intelligence, with our passion and our compassion. Those things will last. That's why we learn. Well, this has been a Church of Six production brought to you by the Bucket of Life, by the Foundation Tower of Stone, by the Wall of Belief, by the Magic Rock, and by the Token of Hope. This too shall pass. Don't forget to believe, y'all. And be live. Peace, my friends.